Hi, this is Leonard Peikoff here to apply Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism to your real-life questions. My responses cover subjects of general interest, such as human relationships, career, and morality, but not current politics. For the present, my answers are posted every other week on Mondays, and Dr. Jerome Brook answers questions on current events on the alternate Mondays. You can listen to full episodes on iTunes or listen to single questions or full episodes on my website. Several years of podcasts are now easily searchable by topic or keywords. If you have a philosophical question to ask, simply go to www.peakoff.com and that's spelled P as in Peter, E-I-K-O-F-F, like the word off at the end, peakoff.com. And of course, feel free to follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Question about the fountainhead. Why is Rourke attracted to Dominic? After all, she has no work, no career that she loves, and she goes out of her way to destroy her highest values, such as Rourke. What rational man would want someone so self-destructive? Well, the answer to that is, what do you see, or what did Rourke see as the essence of Dominique? He did not see her as an uninterested-in-career destroyer of values. He saw her as someone who wanted a career passion, who wanted to support and sustain her uh, highest values, and that she did have high values, including him, but that she held one premise that stopped her from acting on all these good uh, values and goals. And that is, she was malevolent, as Ayn Rand put it. In other words, she did not believe the good had a chance. Even if men acted properly, she thought the evil is so great and so powerful in this world that, for instance, if Rourke were to succeed, then Tui and Winer and the rest of them would put him down and push him back into a granite quarry. They would have destroyed his greatness, and that would make it even worse. If you remember the part about the uh, museum statue that she threw down the air shaft, she loved it. She had paid a fortune, a lot of trouble to get it, but she didn't want the eyes of the rest of the world, of the evil, to look at it and to contaminate him. It's like there's vestiges of purity in the world which are going to be shredded and killed. Almost like, you know, there's good people in the concentration camp, but they have no future. They're going to be killed and put in the gas chamber, so she can't stand to see what's going to happen to those people. And she'd rather they not stand out and not be destroyed off the bat. You know, the evidence of her values was all the way through, and I won't repeat it. But she is a very unique kind of character. She is what you would call a malevolent idealist. Idealist, in this sense, means a valuer, somebody who has rational passionate values, and yet at the same time believes it's impossible to achieve them, but can't give them up and can't believe they're possible. So they're torn by a horrendous conflict. And the question is, can she be saved from malevolence? Now, I have to tell you, in all honesty, when I first read The Fountainhead, unfortunately, I did not identify with Rourke. 
I identified with Dominique because it's exactly what I was, an intense idealist and completely malevolent. And I was absolutely torn when my father and relatives said, you can't be an idealist in this world because ideals have no chance. I hated that, and at the same time, I believed it had, there was no choice. And the very first question that I asked Ayn Rand when I met her was, do you mean to make Rourke an idealist or a practical man who deals with reality in this world? I said, I'm confused because I know you have to be one or the other, but I can't figure out what you intended. Well, that, of course, was a question she loved to hear. If only I had recorded uh, her answer. The answer and the philosophic foundation of the answer, and then the objections I would hear when I left, and then the thinking errors I had made that brought me to that without being able to realize it. It was just breathtaking, and I never again thought I'm going to combine both of those. That was it. The whole fountainhead, basically, is the story of Ian talking to Dominique and straightening her out, only it's in the form of a novel, and uh, uh, Rourke is uh, the teacher. You know, I just find this is totally by the side. Uh, that Ayn is extremely helpful in writing fiction, at least to me, because I need philosophic speeches every once in a while. And I've turned Ayn in my present story into an 18-year-old college student, a boy, and just made him otherwise talk like her. And it's much easier to do because I can talk like her or write write dialogue that way. So, and she, nobody could say I'm, you know, using her improperly because no one will know except you and you'll forget by the time the book comes out, if it ever does. Now here's a letter from a psychiatrist. Do you think every human being has the special faculty of reasoning correctly? I work, uh, for instance, with schizophrenics and for them, many logical, quote, logical conclusions apply which for other individuals are not logical. And these patients explain their conclusions by reference to voices, or else they don't explain them at all. But isn't there like polylogism? There's no objective logic. Here's another question, but let's take that one. Well, I'll give you the other one too. From your point of view, do psychiatric illnesses exist at all? Because there's no means to prove them. Aren't they nothing but social agreements? to classify certain people and kick them out of society. Well, now psychology is not my field. But the faculty of reason is not always unimpaired. You can have uh, a brain, primarily, go wrong for accident or chemicals or whatever reason and destroy or really harm the uh, person's ability to reason if the person is detached from reality, whether for physical or psychological reasons. And that is evidenced by a hallucination, which is not simply a dream. It's a person taking a non-existent as though it were sensory data and despite the sensory elements that he could know to check it. Now, that is a person whose view of logic doesn't mean anything. If he's deducing from delusions, it makes no difference whether he does a good deduction uh, or not. A psychotic who says, my delusion is that I'm Napoleon. From that, it follows that I married Josephine. Where is she? 
I mean, that's logical in the sense that one follows from the preceding, but they're all insane. They're all false. And from, it's certainly not a use of the faculty of reason. It's a departure from that uh, use. Now, do psychological illnesses exist? I don't have the categories of all of them, but in my experience, absolutely. Now, sometimes the borderline between uh, uncommon, normal, and really crazy is difficult. But there are many, many cases where it is not, quote, social agreement, but a person blatantly out of touch with reality. And that's the test. Unable to know what he's perceiving, thinking completely illogical or logical within a nonsensical set of premises. Anybody I'm surprised in psychiatry or psychology that would ask this, when I was young, I took a course in psychopathology, two-semester course, at Bellevue Hospital in New York. And it was taken right in the hospital, uh, given by this famous, I forget his first name, Wexford, if you've heard of the Wexford Bellevue test, and he was like considered a genius and authority. And the essence of the course for two semesters was to bring in patients from the wards, one at a time, sit them under the lights in the stage, and interview or interact with them to bring out the nature of their problems. And it was astounding. Anyone that could watch that year's you know, procession and say, it's just a social agreement, I can't imagine it. Just as one example, I think of offhand, he brought out a catatonic schizophrenic who was sitting or standing. And he, Wexler said to us, now see, this man is waxy flexible. He's given up any attempt to interact with her to respond to the environment. So he's saying, I'm not going to move my body in any way. I quit. I'm afraid. You're hostile. I have nothing I want. So that's it. And as a result, what they call waxy flexible. Waxy would go by talking about something else. Pick up the person's wrist and just hold it up and, you know, like he's raising his hand for a question and then go on. The wrist never moved. The hand stayed up there for the whole interview. And then he would do it. I mean, he didn't hurt him, but he would do it with many different things and whatever. As long as he didn't hurt him, the guy was completely indifferent and he would hold that apparently for days. That's what we were told. And Wexler went so far as to say to him, you know what I'm doing, don't you? And you know that you could. I couldn't see the expression in his eyes, but I just bet he knew. But, you know, he just, he was on strike, basically. Now, that is a real mental illness. That is not a social agreement, and I don't think anybody could imagine it. Can a person or a book be an objectivist without being aware of objectivism? As an example, and then he gives a book on guns, which we don't need to know, but let's say he's right. This book is not an objectivist book, but it is highly rational and objective. Now, I get that question in many ways about not just books, but broadcasts, podcasts, movies, a lot of things which the person says, this book is objective, it's rational. So is it objectivist? And the answer is no, it is not. Because objectivism is not the same thing as objective. Objective is difficult enough, but it means Within some delimited square, or concern yourself only with facts and logic, 
not with emotions or desires. With the it is, not the I wish. It is certainly possible for people, even sometimes people who are not too great, to do a book, a movie, a speech, whatever it is, that you have to say is objective. He gives the facts, there's a logical uh, connection. It's not based on emotion, it's informal, etc. That is objective. As against, you know, one of the Democratic politicians, for example, or the Republican establishment, who utter gibberish interspersed with alleged argument and then make projections on the basis of what they feel, that is not objective. But to be objectivism, you have to be objective because you see that that is the only way to function in reality and achieve your goals and acquire truth. How do you, what do you have to know to understand the grounding of objective, of being objective, and therefore all the things you have to do to be objective? That's where objectivism comes in. You have to, objectivism is a system of philosophy. It's not a book or a speech or whatever. It means that it's a set of principles that cover all the fundamentals of philosophy in metaphysics, in epistemology, in ethics. Not so much, it doesn't really matter what your person's politics is as far as belonging to objectivism. If he follows those fundamentals, he'll one day or other end up uh, being an uh, objectivist or on the, uh, on the cuff of it. Now, if he follows objectivism and he accepts it, and in that framework he realizes reality is independent of us, that's the primacy of existence. Emotions are our means of cognition. That's the role of observation and uh, logic and, and reason uh, and knowledge. There can be no arbitrary and truth. All of that and so much more, you read Opar, all of the whole first part before I get to objective is essential to objectivism and therefore to actually being objective methodically. Now, I would like to see a person who knows nothing about philosophy but has heard you should ignore uh, feelings and just go by observation. He may be able to, on a narrow scale, do it, and sometimes surprisingly on a large scale, but as a life work permeating all of his books and as consistency, even in one speech, I say it cannot be done unless it's so narrow that, you know, you don't even need uh, philosophic advice. You'd be objective no matter what. So that is my distinction. Don't denounce everybody who's not an objectivist. He may very well be objective, but it's not objectivism. It's a consequence. If in an objectivist society, a philosopher like Kant emerges and starts spreading evil ideas to undercut Ayn Rand, should he be allowed to exercise his free speech? Should you merely try to uh, refute him, uh, his ideas, or is it okay to kill him? God, no, it's not okay to kill him. We're talking about speech, not action. If he takes a gun and starts to uh, behave like Hitler, even though 100 years later, 200 years later, he caused Hitler in his life and in his own actions. All he did is talk. He didn't even incite riots. If you allow the reason that if somebody preaches an idea which will lead to bad consequences, it should be okay to kill him, 
Do you know who would be the first to be killed? Ayn Rand. How many people will think she's destroying society? How many people hate her with such a passion? You know, when Paul Ryan was asked by, what's that weird guy, Romney, I think it was Romney, to be his vice president, Romney sat him down and told him, I'll appoint you only if you forget Ayn Rand. And he said quickly, oh, I only liked her economics anyway, so no problem. I mean, the whole, the Democrats hate her, the Republicans hate her, uh, and, you know, the Hollywood hates her, and academia hates her. If you come down with, oh, it's okay to kill people that are bad and giving us evil ideas, undercutting our achievements, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, it's ridiculous. That's why we have freedom of speech, but not freedom of action if it violates the rights of others. And killing somebody is unequivocally violating his rights. I went a little long. Sorry. If you want to know more about Ayn Rand's philosophy, I invite you to ask me a question. I can't answer them all, but I do read them all. Just write to leonard at peakoff.com. And if you haven't already done so, start by reading Ayn Rand's two most important novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. And I might add that it wouldn't hurt you to read my latest book, The Dim Hypothesis. <laughs>